Initially, you may think that this is complicated and also frightening because declining a patient with high expectations may seem more challenging than it is in reality. I inform the patient that I'm honestly convinced that I am not the correct surgeon for them because I cannot make them turn into a satisfied patient. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Rhinoplasty Podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. We are in the month of May, proudly enabled by Carl Stortz. I did not even have to say anything about Carl Stortz. We know the incredible equipment. At Edge Day Hospital, we even have an OR1. So shout out to them for the support of this educational podcast. My guest today, I'm very excited to chat to this man. He has just finished hosting the 15th European Rhinoplasty course. Um, no further introduction, all the way from Belgium, Peter Hellings, welcome to today's episode. Thanks for the kind invitation, Cameron. I'm very excited to exchange some ideas with you and to chat during the next half an hour or 45 minutes. So happy to see you again. Awesome, Peter. So we, you know, we've just come off this uh, European rhinoplasty course, which was just fantastic. There's so much to chat about, you know. Um, I know as your training as an otolaryngologist and then in facial plastic surgery, etc. maybe let's start this journey right at the beginning. How did Peter Hellings end up where Peter Hellings is now? That's a very challenging question, but anyhow, I'll try to reply in a structured way. First of all, you need to find a good wife who is supportive of what you're doing at professional level. Then you need to have a family that is supportive of your professional ambitions. And then in the end, when I became an ENT specialist, I realized that there were some figures in the rhinology field that I considered really popes and, and uh, inspiring figures in that domain. And I talk here mainly about Professor Gilbert Nostrinite and Professor Witzke Falkens. Both have been very inspiring and have triggered my interest in rhinology. And when I finished my PhD uh, dealing with basic immune mechanisms of allergic rhinitis, allergic asthma and global airway disease, I realized there is still a lot of work to do to improve healthcare in the respiratory field. And when I realized that many of the conditions started in the nose, I ended up uh, being a rhinologist. So after my specialty training and after my PhD in basic immune mechanisms underlying rhinitis and sinus disease, I did some subspecialty training in rhinology in the academic medical center in Amsterdam, where I was privileged enough to be uh, uh, an assistant of Professor Nostrinite, Professor Witzke Falkens, and both have inspired me to do what I'm currently doing still today. Yes, but, but Peter, so I mean, in, in terms of, so we've got a rhinoplasty podcast, but your role, your world leading role in rhinology and, and the medical management of nasal disease is huge with euphoria and with um, the EPOS 2020 guidelines. Maybe you just want to steer, before we come back to the rhinoplasty, just for the listeners who are not really familiar with that, tell them a little bit more about what you do in that area of your work. Well, I divide my time uh, in between three pillars. One is the rhinoplasty work and clinical work that I do as rhinologist. So I only do surgery uh, uh, on rhinoplasty patients and on sinus surgery disease patients, so, so sinus uh, disease patients. 
Then one third of my time is dedicated to research, research in the field of chronic respiratory diseases. And one third is dedicated to my hobby, which is Euphoria, the European Forum for Research and Education in Allergy and Airways Disease. Euphoria was founded in 2015 by myself and upon the suggestion of the Commissioner of Health of Europe, who wanted one organization to be dealing with the challenges of respiratory diseases in Europe and beyond. And therefore, Euphoria was founded also dealing with the unmet needs in the respiratory field, which are joining forces between ENT specialists, allergologists, pulmonologists, primary care physicians, all dealing with respiratory diseases and preventing that patients would get contradictory information when they go to see the one or the other healthcare provider. Secondly, we wanted to also train physicians properly in dealing with respiratory diseases like uh, respiratory allergy, sinus disease, and also rhinoplasty. So the course that we organized, the European Rhinoplasty course, fits within the act, uh, educational activity portfolio of uh, Euphoria and is actually one of the key pillars of Euphoria. We founded this course already 15 years ago uh, when I realized there was also the need for a, a good course in Central Europe. Uh, and okay, now it has grown into a course that attracts around 200 participants. And I'm sure that for the next edition, we will keep it uh, limited to 200 participants because we want to keep the exclusive character uh, good and we want to allow all participants to have a unique educational, but also networking opportunity with the key leaders from all over the world, like you, Cameron. Uh, many of those who attended last edition were very uh, much inspired and also overwhelmed by your honest, passionate and also uh, unique content that you brought during the lecture. So I think uh, we are on the good track uh, to keep on inspiring people to be interested in, in rhinoplasty. And this course is not only tailored to the needs or educational needs of ENT doctors, but also attracting uh, many plastic surgeons as well as maxillofacial surgeons, both being in residence or in training, as well as those who are full specialists. Yeah, and that's in Brussels, and it's normally every year in April. So it'll be in April next year again. So no, Peter, that's, that's, that's so. Thank you for that. Now we, we we just touched base on one of the three, which is the the euphoria side of things. I want to move track slightly and talk about your research. Like, yeah, uh, it's just for the listeners out there. Like, Peter Helling is is Mr. PhD churning out PhDs. So tell the listeners a bit about this whole research side of things. Oh well. Um... The research is mainly aiming to solve unmet needs and problems that have not been solved and that are relevant for the patients. I mean, we uh, performed a large number of outcome research on sinus disease patients that underwent FES, on rhinoplasty patients with or without cleft lip noses, where we did the prospective work looking at outcomes, both at aesthetic as well as functional level, as well as research, mainly understanding why patients seek rhinoplasty, why uh, patients remain uncontrolled after a sinus surgery, for instance, but also are dissatisfied after a rhinoplasty. One of the research lines and PhD fellows of mine have been Valerie, Pica, Valerie Picavet, for instance, who designed a body dysmorphic screening questionnaire that nowadays helps us 
to filter those patients and to select those patients that are good candidates for rhinoplasty, mainly eliminating those who will never be satisfied after, even after a perfect result of rhinoplasty. So I think we try to contribute to our domain of rhinoplasty, of sinus surgery, septal surgery, as well as allergy care in such a way that we try to move the field forward and help our colleague physicians as well in achieving better outcomes. This may look very ambitious, but in the end, it's our mission when we work in academic trial centers to do this kind of research that is meaningful and that is valuable, not only for our own patients, but also to mankind. And then Peter, how many PhD students have you mentored over the years? I lost a little track, I've never counted them, but I think it's in between 12 or 15 at this moment. Great. Okay, another question. I, no, I think at this moment there are five, five uh, PhD fellows working on, on, on research projects that I think are valuable. And one of the projects that I can proudly announce is a project that looks at prevention of COVID. Huh? We have now uh, carried out some research projects on how to prevent uh, viral penetration in the nasal tissue, preventing COVID infection. And uh, yeah, while these kind of research projects are meaningful, are valuable, and I think they help us as well to deliver better care for our patients. That's great. So can I ask you about the rhinoplasty rejection study that you're busy with? <laughs> well, you know, once you've reached a certain degree of surgical skills, and you've done research on your own outcome and you reach, for instance, in primary rhinoplasty cases, a satisfaction rate of 91%. And in the secondary ones, I achieve 88%. And in the multiple revision cases, you can achieve up to 82, 84%. At least these are my figures based on the PhD fellowship that Filio Lekakis did in our research center. Uh, we also try to understand better what are the next steps. And the next steps for achieving higher percentages of satisfaction is not only fine-tuning your own techniques, uh, but also selecting the proper patient. Because the worst thing that can happen to a rhinoplasty patient is to achieve a perfect result, or at least achieve a result that you, as a surgeon, consider perfect, with the patient not being satisfied. Uh, it happened to me a couple of times, for instance, that a cleft lip patient had a wonderful aesthetic result, but was dissatisfied by the functional result I achieved. And that made me think about why we should filter out those kind of patients before the surgery. And therefore, we not only have the BDD screening questionnaire as published and proposed by Valerie Pikavet's work, but we also do morphing and other techniques allowing us to filter out patients that are not good candidates for surgery. And therefore, we've taken the initiative to join forces with centers like yours, Cameron, as well as the university centers in Amsterdam and elsewhere in Europe, where we try to list the reasons why we reject patients for rhinoplasty. And this is mainly linked to the personality behind the nose. Uh, patients may have unrealistic expectations, may be overexpectant, may never be satisfied with any kind of result that you achieve. And uh, in my practice, what works best as a tool to select out or to filter those who are not good candidates for rhinoplasty, that is two-dimensional morphing or even three-dimensional morphing that helps us uh, to filter out those patients that will never be satisfied with the result that we achieve. And actually, as a matter of fact, uh, Valerie Pikavet has shown that in those with severe body dysmorphic symptoms or even with the full BDD spectrum, 
or the full BDD syndrome, the quality of life goes down when you perform rhinoplasty. You, so you should not perform uh, rhinoplasty in those patients where you can predict that the quality of life will go down and where patients will be dissatisfied after rhinoplasty. And as a kind of confidential note, I, I, I can share with you that I've even been confronted with a suicide after rhinoplasty when a patient of mine realized actually she should not uh, have undergone the rhinoplasty because she realizes that she will never be the person that she wants to be despite a nose that looks good in her face and despite the fact that she was satisfied with the result of the rhinoplasty but realizing only after the rhinoplasty that the rhinoplasty is not a solution for her mental illness or psychological disorder. So Peter, it's 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 interesting to say we should be rejecting the patients and not doing them and we, we know of the reasons, but how do you break the bad news to the patient? So here's me, I'm coming to you, Peter Hellings, top international surgeon. I've traveled to come and see you. Um, I want to have the rhinoplasty, but you've picked up that I'm not the right patient. How are you actually, because it's a question many people ask, is, is how do you actually say to a patient, no? Because here you are for years and you're training and you want to do rhinoplasty and it can be a great outcome, but yeah. you, it's not the right patient. How do you say that to somebody? Initially, you may think that this is complicated and also frightening because declining a patient with high expectations may seem more challenging than it is in reality. I inform the patient that I'm honestly convinced that I am not the correct surgeon for them because I cannot make them turn into a satisfied patient. And as part of the trial that we have conducted, including 200 patients where we decline them as candidate, as candidate for a rhinoplasty, none of them turned angry, none of them turned extremely frustrated or left the room without a lot of frustration. Because when I show them with 2D images that in the end we don't agree on a perfect result, we don't agree on a final plan for surgery, these patients tend to realize the complexity of a rhinoplasty and they also confirm that maybe the surgery may not always be the best solution for them. If they experience a major frustration related to this decline of mine, I always offer them some names of colleagues who are excellent colleagues that might also reconsider uh, my opinion and that may indeed consider them as a good candidate for surgery. Uh, or I may advise them to go and seek psychological help. And to my surprise, this is not always considered like a very negative sign by these patients because many of them realize they are obsessed by the nose. Many of them realize they should change their attitude in order to not allow uh, a nasal deformity control uh, their full life and a full obsession. So I think in the end, uh, none of my patients in the trial that we have conducted and we hope to be able to finalize this study soon and publish the data, none of them turns into an aggressive patient. We all know the slogan of uh, Eugene Tardy uh, that was taken over by Gilbert Nostrinité one day, which was in the first part of your career, you learn how to operate. And in the second part, you know, you learn who not to operate. And actually that is the truth huh? because an unsatisfied patient may turn into a pain in the back. We all know that. And when we can prevent such an issues, 
uh, it's, it's, it's logic that we try to prevent us from being exposed uh, to these kind of patients. I tend to refer here also to the patient population uh, coming from the transgender community. I don't know if you have uh, lots of experience with these transgender patients, but they tend to be also highly demanding, not always having realistic expectations, sometimes pushing you to do some overcorrections. And in those patients, we need to be extremely careful. And I must confess that recently I turned down one of those patients coming from abroad she was not only aggressive to me, she was also aggressive to the nurses, to, the, to the, the planning of the surgeries. And in the end, I declined doing surgery, not because of my perception, because in the end, I agreed on doing surgery. But when the nurse came to me in tears, even before the surgery had been carried out, I decided that I don't want to expose my team to these kind of patients. But I cannot speak for all rhinoplasty surgeons here. I just speak to those that seek, uh, well, that see patients coming for multiple revision cases or that see patients uh, referred by other colleagues who don't feel comfortable by doing surgeries because of many reasons. That's interesting. Okay, Peter, tell me a little bit about working under Professor North Trinity. I mean, that's where you did your fellowship. That, that's amazing. And then from there, that led into the different courses you, you're doing. But what an amazing man to, to be taught under and be your mentor. Well, indeed, I owe a lot uh, to Gilbert because he had taught me not only the surgical uh, techniques, but also the psychological context of dealing with complicated cases. As he had his own uh, international course in modern rhinoplasty techniques that I took over in Amsterdam, I don't remember exactly at what year, I think it was 2005 or 2007, um, I felt like, okay, rhinoplasty is an art. I always tell my residents that you can learn a monkey how to operate, but in order to really make sure you turn your patient into a satisfied patient, you need to be more than a monkey. Huh? You need to understand the psychology behind the patient and make sure that you implement the principles of precision medicine into your practice, being personalized care, prediction of success and prediction of the outcomes and so on, also preventing dissatisfaction, preventing uh, complications and preventing also the need for revision surgery. And in the end, also the participation of your patient in the therapeutic plan. I discuss always with the patient the different graphs, the different options, the different techniques, because two thirds of my patients nowadays undergo open approach, one third undergoes a closed approach. I associate in these discussions also expected outcomes, likelihood of satisfaction and so on. So it's just not an ordinary procedure. It's more like a chess game that you play before the surgery in order to make sure uh, you can deliver the surgery in the best possible way and in a safe context. You may know the studies, Cameron, that have been performed in the US showing that amongst the physicians that are being murdered by their patients, uh, no, surgeon, no surgeons are number one. So we expose ourselves to some risk when we do these surgeries, especially working in tertiary care referral centers. If we have a certain degree of visibility in the rhinoplasty world, we expose ourselves to the risk of attracting the most challenging personalities, and therefore we need to be careful. Uh, very true. Very true. So I want to maybe I'm I, I'm a bit a drama queen in this, but sometimes you know 
uh, I cannot see patients alone because I want somebody to sit next to me as a witness because some patients are so complicated from a personality perspective that I really think we need to be very careful and we cannot be careful the enough. Media. So, so Peter, now a, a, a kind of almost an interesting, controversial, hot topic at the moment is the whole thing about preservation rhinoplasty. Now, in context, here you are more than 20 years of doing rhinoplasty, being trained very much in structural approach with guys who have fantastic outcomes. On top of this, strong academic. So now there's this resurgence of preservation rhinoplasty. The, most of the papers are talking about um, techniques. I don't know how much has come out in terms of actual outcomes. I'd love to hear some of your comments around this new hot topic in the world of rhinoplasty. It's indeed a very hot topic and it's an ideal topic for a pro-con session. At this moment, I personally do not have experience with preservation rhinoplasty because at this moment, in the context where I work and with my surgical skills doing the structural rhinoplasty, I did not feel the need to change techniques or to try to improve outcomes further. Based on the outcome studies that I've been performing together with Fidio Lekakis on, on more than 600 or 800 of the, the cases that we performed, we do believe and we are convinced without any pretension that we have excellent results with the techniques that we have been applying for so many years. That does not prevent me from developing and changing techniques. And for instance, I never put a columella strut anymore. We always use the septal extension grafts. Uh, we nowadays also implement uh, spreader grafts via the endonasal approach. I do much more ailer uh, reconstructive work than I did five years ago. Uh, we apply eyes on, on the face during the surgery in order to prevent hematoma. Uh, so we try to always change and improve techniques in order to achieve the best possible outcomes in the short term as well as in the long term post-operative phase. Having said that, Preservation rhinoplasty at this moment, and according to my humble opinion, is more like a marketing tool, informing patients about less aggressive techniques and trying to distinguish yourself and your skills from competitors in the field. I may be wrong, I may be biased by the fact that I work in an academic center, but at this moment, I don't feel the need to attract more patients. I rather feel the need to uh, reduce the number of patients because I, I I have too many at this moment and I would like to have colleagues dealing with part of my, my patients because we are overwhelmed by patients. So at this moment, I haven't felt the need to change techniques because while I'm still convinced that with our proper techniques that I have fine-tuned over the last 25 years, we still achieve very good results. But that does not prevent me from thinking in every single case whether or not this would be a good candidate for the preservation technique. But at this moment, I haven't embraced the technique and it may be a shortcoming and the future will tell. 
But I'm just afraid, and that I must admit, I'm just a little bit afraid of the consequences of preservation rhinoplasty on the nasal breathing and the nasal function. I think it may work very well in subtle deformities of the nasal dorsum where you would like to fine-tune them and where you might adapt. But if there is also the need for tip work, as is the case in over 60% of my cases, preservation may not be very much welcomed uh, within my capacities or within my philosophy of work. Absolutely. Okay. Peter, I have two more questions for you. Um, first one. What does Peter Hellings do when he is not doing one of his three pillars, his euphoria, his research, or his rhinoplasty? Well, of course, family is top priority. And we try always to adapt our agenda to what is needed in the family, what is needed or what is dictated by my wife or what is uh, on the plate of my, my children's agenda. Having said that, uh, when there is some free time, uh, we divide our time between uh, doing some structural work in the house or even piano playing because uh, that is excellent distraction. I must admit that due to the COVID period and the, uh, the reduction in, in our uh, um, travel needs and also uh, stays abroad, uh, I could up picking playing piano again after 30 years. And this is rendering me really exciting and also helping me to overcome some of the headaches that I sometimes have, because you may know that I have been very lucky five years ago when I was hit by a snowboarder on the skiing slopes and ended up with some uh, severe brain trauma. Uh, I was very lucky enough to have worn a helmet and due to the excellent care of the um, intensive care unit uh, physicians in Innsbruck, uh, I can still do uh, my professional life and enjoy life further. Which, was, which is not the case for, for instance, uh, Schumacher and Prince Friso from the Netherlands, who ended up in that same department with a similar trauma, but in the end, they were not as lucky as I am. So I have a good guardian angel uh, that looks after me and that allows me now to enjoy life and to meet colleagues again, for instance, in the context of this European rhinoplasty course. I was so privileged and felt so happy to meet so many colleagues uh, that I appreciate very much last week in Brussels and we can enjoy life again. And playing piano again uh, makes me realize how beautiful life can be also and how um, stimulating uh, music can also be because whenever I experience uh, some headaches after a frustrating uh, surgery day, uh, going to the piano and try to decipher some uh, music from Chopin, Liszt or Rachmaninoff, uh, it, it, uh, it helps me to get the headaches fading away and it helps me to uh, find joy in, 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 in life and, and end the wow. day in a nice Peter, way. That's amazing. I didn't, I didn't know you'd been through such trauma. I'm, I'm glad you, you survived. Sure. Uh, it takes the wind out my sails a little bit. So, okay. Last question I have. Where do you see the future of rhinoplasty? The future of rhinoplasty will be good. Uh, we need to be optimistic. For the future generation, it's very complicated to really find the best techniques and the best surgeons that are willing to train their physicians or their colleagues in a fair and ethically justified way. I mean, Organizing uh, educational courses in the field of rhinoplasty nowadays is very challenging. 
because you do not want teachers to give marketing talks. You want teachers that really contribute with their knowledge in order to help the junior generation and also the colleagues to improve their skills and to provide them with real tools uh, to help their patients better and to achieve better outcomes. We all know that rhinoplasty is a challenging procedure and I always tell my patients that rhinoplasty is much more complicated than an otoplasty or a mentoplasty where satisfaction rates are sky high. We all know the obvious reasons why rhinoplasty is associated with less satisfaction in general. And I do hope for the next generation that, I, that they try to find a good mentor, a good teacher, taking profit of some excellent fellowship programs that you may run Cameron, that the European Academy is running, that we might set up in Belgium with some colleagues come from different university hospitals. So I do hope that the future generation gets inspired during courses to improve their own skills and to actually pave the way for better rhinoplasty outcome results. We as ENT doctors have also the duty to train our plastic surgeons as well as our colleagues from the maxillofacial world to train them in the knowledge that ENT doctors are very well placed to perform rhinoplasty in a very good way because we are supposed to not only take care of the aesthetics but also of the function of the nose and therefore it's very important that during courses like the European rhinoplasty course we teach also our colleagues from different specialties about uh, the complexity of rhinoplasty and how to deal with the aesthetics and function at the same time. I get very frustrated if I have to fix not only the aesthetic but also the functional problems of patients that have had rhinoplasties carried out before by colleagues uh, from different specialties and I think uh, in our philosophy, we need to try to improve uh, outcomes of rhinoplasty as much as possible. I hope you agree, Cameron, and I think you're doing a fantastic, uh, fantastic job in your uh, network and with your uh, virtual initiatives and physical courses, uh, which I admire very much. And I was so excited to contribute to the 24-hour rhinoplasty initiative that you organized in 2021, and I hope you'll do the same this year, because in the end, we need to join forces in order to bring the relevant messages to the world. And it's not only about this or that technique works in my hand. It's also about choosing the right patients for the right techniques. And I hope that that will be the future message that comes across when we organize courses and bring together expertise from all over the globe. Sure, guys. Well, there you've heard it now from Peter Hellings, Professor Peter Hellings, PhD, academic. It's all about the outcomes for the patients. So, Peter, thank you. Thank you so much for the, those pearls of wisdom. A shout out to Carl Stortz again for enabling this um, podcast. Guys, please come back again next week. Uh, it's so interesting talking to these world leaders. And if you can upskill yourself and learn more through this, do it. So, Peter, thank you very much for your time. Listeners, thank you for um, tuning in and we'll catch you guys again next week. Wonderful. Thank you very much for the honor, Cameron.